Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. From the blackest corners of your mind. They call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. I hope you enjoyed our 500th episode specials over the last couple of weeks. Now that it's in the rear view, it's time to turn our gaze to the next 500. We've got a lot of great fiction lined up to take us to the end of the year. Some familiar names, and plenty of new ones, too. But there is one thing we're looking for that I'm hoping you can help us with, Children of the Night. We need a few new voices to bring these terrifying tales to life. All voices are welcome. All you need is a decent microphone and a quiet recording space. But we're particularly interested in adding some additional voice diversity to our roster. People from different cultures, and backgrounds, different places in the world. One slightly more specific request is females from the UK, Europe, Australia, and New Zealand. So if hiding in a darkened closet, whispering nightmare-inducing tales into a microphone sounds like a good time to you, head over to talestoterrify.com slash volunteer to get a better sense of what we're looking for and submit an audition of your own. I look forward to hearing from you. For as long as the podcast has been around, narrating has been on a volunteer basis. And I know throughout the years we've expressed many times the desire to not only pay our writers, but our narrators as well. My sincerest hope is that before we can celebrate another hundred episodes, we are able to do that. It's been a while since I've mentioned funding and I know it's not the most glamorous part of the podcast, but it is one thing that is essential to helping us create these stories for you week after week. Interestingly, it was my conversation with former host Stephen Kilpatrick that really brought something into clear perspective for me. 
he mentioned that at one point during his stint as host, he'd done the math. If each listener chipped in just $1 a month, we would be able to pay our narrators and writers full professional rates as well as compensate our staff for the hard work they do. I know a dollar doesn't seem like a lot, and I understand for some people it absolutely is, but if you're in any position to donate even a single dollar a month, either through PayPal or Patreon, that would be a huge step in the right direction. And there are two tremendous people who've joined our ranks of supporting listeners recently. A huge thank you this week to Philip Holman and Ryan Bareko for taking the plunge, as well as a belated thanks to R.E.J. Yoki for updating your pledge. Your support keeps the ichor pumping through these shriveled veins. Obviously, there's a wealth of free fiction out there, and everyone's financial situation is different. But if you enjoy our show and you're able to help support us, as I said, even just a dollar, it goes a long way toward helping us make Tales to Terrify's next 500 episodes bigger and better and more profitable for our contributors than ever before. Patreon.com slash Tales to Terrify or donate via the PayPal link at the bottom of our homepage. And again, a huge thank you from the bottom of our moldy hearts to those of you amazing listeners who support us already. Tonight, we have one longer tale for you, which comes to us from Caitlin Marceau. Caitlin Marceau is an author and lecturer living and working in Montreal. She holds a B.A. in creative writing, is a member of both the Horror Writers Association and the Quebec Writers Federation, and spends most of her time writing horror and experimental fiction. She's been published for journalism, poetry, as well as creative nonfiction, and has spoken about horror literature at several Canadian conventions. Her collections, A Blackness Absolute and Palimpsest, are slated for publication by D&T Publishing and Ghost Orchid Press in 2022, respectively. If she's not covered in ink or wading through stacks of paper, you can find her ranting about issues in pop culture or nerding out over a good book. For more, check out CaitlinMarceau.ca. Children of the Night, join me for Caitlin Marceau's Run. A Tales to Terrify original. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. 
There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Nineteen sixty-eight. Matthew stares at the clock over the blackboard and tries not to panic as the minute hand slowly makes its way to three in the afternoon. The classroom is bristling with excitement, students eager to leave school and go play with their friends. But for him, it's another feeling entirely that fills his body and makes him sweat. Fear. Not that he'd ever admit it to anyone. A guy's got his pride. But the end of the school day always fills him with dread, and knowing that it's getting closer now sends a chill down his spine and makes his hair stand on end. It normally wouldn't be so bad, but his last class of the day on Wednesdays is history, and he can feel two familiar sets of eyes watching him from the back of the room as the teacher drones on about this week's quiz. Hoping that the teacher doesn't notice, she caught him last week and made him stay late to clap erasers, Matthew slowly begins to put his things in his school bag. He leaves his Hillroy copybook and nub of a pencil in full view, but sneaks his blue Bic pen and wooden ruler into the rectangular leather bag. He's in the middle of stuffing his thick brown paper-wrapped history book and his duo tang into the bag when the bell rings. It's loud. Too loud. And it continues to ring in his head and make his teeth hurt even after it stopped. Not caring what gets crumpled, he stuffs the rest of his things in the backpack, buckles it shut, and runs for the door as fast as his legs can take him. He can feel the two boys not far behind him as he shoves his way down the halls and through the front door of Cannon O'Meara Elementary School. He runs toward the small iron-wrought fence, grabs onto one of the pointed bars, careful not to impale himself like a boy had the prior year, and hoists himself over it. He lands shakily on the pavement and runs down Center Street. He can hear the two boys gaining on him and doesn't need to check behind him to confirm what he already knows. They're going to catch him. He isn't fast enough. He keeps running, desperately pushing forward even as he feels a hand wrap around the collar of his shirt. Pulling hard, the boy clotheslines Matthew with his own shirt and lets out an obnoxious laugh as Matthew falls to the ground in front of St. Gabriel's Parish. Hey, Maddie, where you going in such a rush? Paul, the bigger of the two boys, asks. His face is so fat it looks swollen, and his dark eyes stare at Matthew from behind disheveled brown hair. His blue plaid shirt is tucked into beige slacks, his brown belt pulled so tight at his waist that the leather looks to be cutting him in two. Matthew looks up at him, coughing and rubbing his sore throat with his hand. When he doesn't answer, the boy kicks him hard in the ribs. Sorry, what was that? Matthew wants to answer, wants to curse him out but his lungs are burning from running, and he's starting to feel short of breath. He coughs louder this time, his chest feeling impossibly tight. He takes his backpack off and pulls at the leather buckles, fingers fumbling with the leather as the two boys laugh at his clumsiness. David, the smaller of the two bullies, moves to pull the bag out of Matthew's hand. Matthew reflexively punches him in the arm. Ow! The boy yells, mostly out of surprise. Matthew finally works the bag open and dumps the contents out on the asphalt. He rummages through the mess, panic slowly setting in as it gets harder to breathe, until he finally locates the beclomethasone inhaler. He shakes the brown plastic tube, removes the mouth cap, and presses down on the metal aerosol canister as he inhales as deeply as his lungs will allow. A wave of relief washes over him as he tastes the bitter medicine and begins to feel his lungs open, his breathing returning to normal. He looks up to see a pair of hands grab his collar, and he doesn't fight back as Paul drags him to his feet invading his personal space. The large boy reeks of sweat, and his breath smells like the old bologna he had for lunch, and it takes all of Matthew's self-control not to shudder in disgust. You hit my friend, he says, pulling Matthew closer and enveloping him in the stench. 
big mistake. Didn't think you even knew how to make a fist, loser. Let me give you some pointers for next time. Paul lets go of Matthew with one hand, holding him firm with the other. He draws his arm back, balling his meaty fingers into a fist, and smiles wide as Matthew tries not to flinch. Is there a problem here? Matthew sighs with relief as he spots Father John's annoyed expression from the steps of the old gray church. His thinning hair is brushed back and his black robes are spotless as always. His arms are crossed in front of his chest, and by the looks of things he hasn't come outside of his own good will. Behind him is a small boy with a dirty blonde hair framing his thin, pointed face and big ears that stick out awkwardly from his head. His hand-me-down clothes are clearly two sizes too big. The boy wrings his hands, shrinking away from the boys on the road and looking as though he's hoping no one will notice him standing there. No, David mutters as Paul lets go of Matthew and takes a step back. Good. I'll see you boys on Sunday. Yes, Father John. They all say in unison. The priest waits by the door for the two larger boys to leave, grumbling to no one in particular when Paul makes a show of walking over Matthew's school things. He waits a moment longer, a scowl still fixed firmly on his face, before turning to head back inside the parish. Thank you, the small boy says in a soft voice as the priest passes, eyes fixed on the ground. Father John nods, opens the heavy wooden door to the church, and closes it behind him. Once the older man is out of sight, the kid races down the steps and across the yard to his friend. You okay? he asks. For now. You know Paul's going to start calling you Pat the Rat again, though, right? Oh. Did he ever really stop? Not really, Matthew admits, kneeling down to pick up his things off the sidewalk. Well, there we go. Patrick laughs, bending down to help. You shouldn't have told on him, Matthew says after a moment of silence. Now he's going to start beating on you again and making life tough. Patrick shrugs, but doesn't say anything. He picks up Matthew's inhaler off the ground, passing it to him, and tries to unwrinkle some of the crumpled pages by holding them taut and rubbing them over his thigh. Matthew drops the beclomethasone into the school bag, coughing into the crook of his arm, and watches Patrick with a sad frown. But thanks, you know, for saving my neck. Don't thank me just yet. Don't you have math with him tomorrow afternoon? <sighs> Matthew groans. Had to remind me, didn't you? With Matthew's belongings collected and packed away, the two boys stand and begin to head down Center Street together in comfortable silence. The early September wind feels good in their skin under the warm rays of the afternoon sun. And Matthew can't help but hope that winter will come late this year. The leaves on the trees are still mostly green, but the tips of yellow and orange foliage peek out from between the branches and he knows in a few short weeks he'll be back to long sleeves, sweaters, and warm jackets. See you tomorrow? You're not going home yet? Matthew asks, surprised. Nah, I'm going to meet my brothers at the Ash Avenue Boys Club. Want to come? Can't. Got that stupid history test tomorrow. Oh, okay. Well, later, Matt. Yeah, see you. Then, thanks again. Hey, Patrick. Patrick smiles and waves goodbye heading west on Wellington, and Matthew watches him go for a minute before heading in the opposite direction to his home in Griffintown. He can feel a lump forming in the back of his throat, his eyes suddenly stinging, angry that his best friend, the smallest kid that ever grew up in the point, was forced to come to his defense today. And as much as he appreciates the help, he knows the beating Paul is going to give him tomorrow is going to be even worse as a result. Eyes on the ground, he notices the white rubber toes of his new black running shoes are scuffed, probably from when he hopped the black iron fence. He kicks at a tuft of grass peeking through the cracks of the sidewalk in frustration. As mad as he is at Paul for picking on him, he's angry at himself for not being faster, for not pushing harder, for letting the two boys catch him day after day after day. He wants to scream in frustration and pull his hair as he thinks of all the other Wednesdays that David and Paul have ruined for him. This year, he's finally in grade six. This year, he's finally graduating. This year was supposed to be different, but it isn't. It's just like all the other years before it. His face feels hot, anger welling up inside him, and he can feel tears threatening to spill over. He grabs the straps of his leather school bag, pulling the bag hard against his back, and he runs. His feet beat the pavement at full speed, his rubber soles slapping against the pavement as he runs down Wellington, the Lachine Canal coming into view. 
His heart hammers against his ribs, his lungs feel like they're breathing in fire, and the muscles in his legs are sore and quivering as he propels himself down the street. It doesn't take long before his chest begins to tighten, his throat closing up and air getting harder and harder to take in. His sprint slows to a jog, his jog to a walk, and eventually he comes to a complete stop. He stands still, bending at the waist to hang his head between his knees, gulping air as sweat beads off his brow and rolls down his face. He closes his eyes, trying to calm himself down without reaching for his inhaler. Eventually, his heartbeat slows and his lungs relax. He begins to make his way down the street once again. Waves beat against the cement walls of the canal, and the sound of the birds overhead mixes with the noise of faraway cars on the highway. He scoops up some pebbles from the side of the road as he walks and throws them one at a time over the metal railing, watching them disappear into the blackness of the dirty water. He eyes a pack of ducks drifting along the stream and stops, takes aim, and throws one of the pebbles with all his strength, imagining Paul's beefy face as he lets the rock fly. It makes its mark, clipping one of the ducks on its rear end and sending it squawking up the canal, looking with the rest of its paddling. Look at him go! Great shot! Someone calls out. Matthew jumps and spins on his heel, trying to spot who's followed him down the empty street. I'm over here! The voice calls out again. Matthew looks out over the canal and, much to his surprise, spots an older boy standing on the edge of the old Wellington Swing Bridge. The bridge stands abandoned in the middle of the canal, having been shut down in favor of the Wellington Tunnel years ago when the waterway stopped being used for commercial trade. Matthew's father sometimes talks about working on the canal with his own father when he was younger and watching as the operators powered up the pivoting bridge that connects Point St. Charles to Griffintown. The entire structure would turn to allow boats up and down the canal before swinging closed and bisecting the waterway once more. The boy is leaning against one of the rusted steel beams and smiling across the water at Matthew. A white-collared shirt peeks out from underneath his black suit and his pants are cut off at the knee. His black leather shoes reflect the bright afternoon sun. Fine aim you got there, the boy calls out, voice echoing against the wall of the basin. Thanks, Matthew calls back. He drops the remaining pebbles onto the ground and resumes walking, eyes fixed on the ground as he begins to make his way past the bridge and the strangely dressed boy. What's your name? Matthew. Matthew. Massey, he answers, attempting to avert his eyes from the other boy, but unable to keep from flicking curious glances at him occasionally. Nice to meet you, Matthew Massey. My name's Art. Well, Arthur Carr, but only my ma calls me Arthur, he says, pulling a face. So, not to be nosy, but why are you throwing rocks at ducks? I wasn't, Matthew grumbles. I was throwing rocks at Paul. You named the duck Paul? That's a dumb name for a duck. What did Paul do to get you mad at him? Quack too loud? No, Matthew shouts, stopping in his tracks to glare up at Art in frustration. I was throwing rocks at this stupid kid named Paul. Or at least, it's what I was imagining. He trails off, biting his lip. Kid giving you a hard time? I don't really feel like talking about it, he says with a shrug. Oh, okay. The two stare at each other for a moment in an awkward silence before Matthew furrows his brow and points at Art. What's wrong with your suit? Matthew asks. What do you mean by that? Nothing, just the pants. You're missing the ends of them. Cut him off. Why? It's hot out. Why do you care? I don't. Sorry. Matthew continues to walk down Wellington Street as Art matches his pace along the old bridge. You're headed to the tunnel, aren't you? Art asks. Yeah, it's the quickest way home. You live in the Griff? Art asks, perking up. Yeah, on the mountain. You? Me too! Art cries. Really? Matthew raises an eyebrow and eyes the boy suspiciously. Even though it's a long street, he knows practically everyone who lives in the area, and this strange-looking boy who is filled with too many questions isn't ringing any bells. He quickens his pace. Well, I used to, Art says sheepishly, speeding up to keep up with the other boy. He runs one hand down the side of his perfectly parted, slicked brown hair while he stuffs the other one into his pocket. But I haven't been there in a long time. How long's it been? Sixty years. Matthew's frown eases when Art chuckles at his own joke. Where do you live now? Here, there, wherever I want. Art doesn't tell him out loud, but Matthew knows what he's really saying. A street kid. He feels a twinge of pity for the older boy hanging out on the abandoned metal bridge. It might be warm now, but winter is fast on its way, and the city can be unforgiving. How'd you get up there anyways? 
I jumped. Matthew gapes at him in disbelief and shakes his head. No, there's no way. You jumped across all this, he asks, motioning to the gap between the steel beams and the road. No, dummy, I jumped on the bridge when it was swung around. He laughs. Matthew opens his mouth to call Art a liar. The bridge hasn't worked in years. But the other boy continues talking. Matt, I, I really wouldn't take the tunnel if I were you. Oh yeah? Why's that? Bunch of kids went in there before you came along. Looked like they wanted to fight. If I was you, I'd take the long way home today. Matthew stops in his tracks and stares off toward the tunnel. It's a gaping hole in the old gray wall. Hard to miss even if you don't know where to look. And even though the sun is shining brightly, the entrance to the tunnel looks black. It's only a 15-minute walk to his duplex from the tunnel, but the thought of walking under the canal in the dark, confining space, alone, makes him anxious. How many? He asks. What? How many went in? Three? Four, I think? I wasn't counting them, he says, rolling his eyes even though Matthew can't see it from where he stands. Matthew considers the situation. Three kids at this hour means it's probably the Melu family, and he has nothing to worry about from them. Matthew's mom and theirs are close, and if they try to pull anything, they'll get the beating of a lifetime at home. On the other hand, he thinks, if it's four kids this early in the day, then it might be the Francis brothers skipping class again, in which case he's in for trouble. That would turn his already sour day even worse. He could always wait around for Patrick and his brothers. Although Patrick is small and wiry, his two older brothers are massive by anyone's standards. No one in the point, Griffintown, or even Goose Village would ever think of picking on the youngest Laprairie son when his two bodyguards are around. As much as he wants to wait for them to finish at the boys' club, though, the idea of needing his friend to come to his rescue twice in the same day makes Matthew red with embarrassment. So he continues to make his way toward the tunnel. You're gonna go in anyway? Art asks, surprised. Didn't take you for the fighting type. I'm not. Oh, Art says, drawing the sound out. A runner, then. Like your style. Matthew swallows hard, a familiar knot forming in the back of his throat, and the back of his neck starts feeling hot as he focuses on the tunnel, walking toward it at a brisk pace. Art's right to think he's a runner, but Matthew isn't about to mention that he's not a terribly fast one. Good luck! Art calls after him from his post on the swing bridge. He walks to the edge of the structure and sits down, feet dangling over the water below and stares after Matthew with a frown. Matthew approaches the tunnel and walks ramrod straight, his thin shoes beating against the pavement as the blackness of the tunnel swallows him whole. It's colder in the tunnel, which probably shouldn't surprise him, and he feels a chill pass down his spine as the sound of his footsteps echoes through the empty space. The working lights on the walls are dim and do little to lighten the space, and the broken ones flicker and whine. It's a short walk, but in the dark it feels like it goes on forever. As he approaches the end of the tunnel, he can hear the voices of the boys Art was talking about, and dread pulls in his stomach as he shields his eyes against the bright afternoon sunlight to count the shadowy figures up ahead. One, two, three. He lets out a sigh of relief as he approaches the boys. It's only when he's halfway through calling out a greeting that he spots the fourth kid, and he immediately wishes he'd taken Art's advice about finding another way home as the Francis boys come into focus. Hey, Maddie, why are you so happy to see us? Drawls the youngest boy, feral smile plastered across his face. Two of the Francis boys enter the tunnel and push past Matthew, standing behind him and preventing him from going back the way he came. The other two stand side by side at the Griffintown exit just up ahead, cutting off his way home. Matthew's palms start to get sweaty, his heart resumes beating at a fast and familiar tempo, and he tries not to look afraid as the boys close in. Damn it, Matthew. Do you know how expensive textbooks are? Do you think your mother and I are made of money? We can't keep buying you new books every time you lose one. His father yells at him from across the dinner table. Sorry, he says quietly, staring down at his supper. He pushes the meatloaf from one end of his plate to the other with his fork, leaving a trail of gravy through the mashed potatoes, peas, and turnips. You don't play with your food. You eat it, his father scolds. He can feel his older siblings staring at him, attempting to stifle their snickers. Margaret giggles under her breath, and their mother shoots her a quelling look. Thomas and Rebecca manage to stay silent, but their blue eyes are alight with amusement as their father gets increasingly worked up. You know money's tight right now, but you still go and pull this shit, his dad says, stabbing at his plate. 
Matthew bites his tongue hard enough to draw blood as he thinks of his new AMC Rambler parked outside the duplex, polished bright enough for his dad to see his reflection in the paint on a cloudy day. Matthew cuts a large piece off his slice of meatloaf with the side of his fork and shovels it into his mouth, chewing on the tasteless ground beef and swallowing it down with difficulty. He picks up his glass of milk and takes a swig to wash it down. Maddie, sweetheart, I know you're not trying to misplace your things, but you can't keep being this forgetful, his mother says evenly. You need to be more careful. Your father and I can't afford to keep replacing everything you lose. We're not buying you a new one. End of story. His father grumbles through a mouthful of turnips. I said I was sorry, Matthew protests. He wants to tell them it wasn't his fault. He wants to tell them the Francis boys took his history book, but he keeps his eyes fixed on his plate and tries not to argue. According to his dad, everything that happened today was his fault anyway. A boy your age should know how to throw a punch, his father told him a few years back. It had been the first time Matthew had come crying to him about the boys at school. Even if you don't win, shouldn't be scared to fight. I won't have a coward for a son. No, not under this roof. Matthew hadn't dared to bring the boys at school up in conversation again ever since. You're going to save up every allowance, every penny, and every cent of birthday money until you can buy yourself another damn book. But that's not fair! Matthew shouts before he can stop himself. What am I supposed to use until then? Don't you raise your voice to me! His dad yells, pounding his fists on the table. Bits of turnip sprang out of his mouth and speckling his beard. That's not my damn problem! Matthew's hands shake and his eyes feel hot. His mother's sad stare and his siblings' expressions of glee don't help, and he pushes himself to his feet. Where do you think you're going? His father asks quietly. I'm not hungry. If you leave this table after all the work your mother put into making you a hot dinner, then I better not see you for the rest of the goddamn night. You understand me? Yes. Yes what? Yes, sir. Matthew pushes his chair in and storms out of the dining room to his small bedroom, it's a cramped space, hardly enough room for him, let alone all of his things. He sits heavily on his bed, balling his hands into fists and pounding them down on his pillow. He imagines that he's hitting his father's and Paul's faces instead of the lime green bedding. When he tires of this, he stares out the small window that overlooks the laneway behind the run-down duplex. He watches the neighbor's dog bark at people who aren't there, watches the shadows of people moving through their homes behind closed curtains, watches as the sun finally begins to set in the evening sky. He lies down on his bed and stares up at the ceiling. It takes him a long time, but he eventually falls into a dreamless sleep. Matt, that seems like a really bad idea, Patrick says desperately as the two boys change out of their gym uniforms into their day clothes. You're going to get yourself killed. Not if I leave right as the bell rings, he says enthusiastically, pulling on his tan slacks. I don't even have to go back to my locker, he adds proudly, holding up his book bag, which he'd crammed into the small gym locker. Okay. And, think about it, Paul definitely won't follow us if we go this way. I wonder why. If you don't want to come, I don't, Matt. I really don't. Patrick is afraid, looking smaller than usual, and Matthew can't blame him. The idea of cutting through the French school is enough to give any Anglo second thoughts. That's okay, Patrick. You don't have to, he says with a small smile. You gonna be okay to get home, though? Yeah. My brothers are meeting me after school, and we're going to Hogan's Bath. You wanna come? Matthew shakes his head. You sure? Swimming sure beats... Well, getting a beating. It's gonna be fine, Matthew says, smiling wide as the bell rings louder. Later, Patrick. Matthew takes off through the dreary white halls of Canon O'Meara, pushing past other students to the front door and barreling down the steps before anyone else. He runs up Island Street to St. Patrick, turning the corner fast onto St. Yours and running full speed into the kid in front of him. The two go sprawling onto the sidewalk. Crazy! The other boy shouts, pushing himself up off the ground as a circle of school kids begins to form around them. The boy's lip is split, and his arm looks red and sore from where he slid on the ground. I'm really sorry, Matthew says, breathing hard. He rolls himself onto a sitting position and examines the damage. His slacks and skin are torn on the right knee, blood slowly beginning to stain the fabric. His hands and chin are scraped from where he landed, and his ankle is sore. Maudit tête carie! The boy yells, and Matthew realizes, with some horror, that he's run into a pack of students from the French school. He pushes himself up onto his feet and tries to make a break for it, but one of the boys cuffs him in the ear, putting him off balance, and sends him sprawling back onto the sidewalk. Two other boys pull Matthew to his feet, 
and the boy he ran into throws a punch that connects hard with his left eye. Matthew yells and kicks blindly at the kid, his foot and sore ankle making contact, and the kid shouts in pain. The two boys holding him up let him go. Then one of them shoves Matthew hard to the ground. Matthew lands, cursing under his breath, but manages to push himself to his feet before anyone can land a kick. He runs, ankle threatening to buckle underneath him, heading back down St. Patrick Street in the relative safety of the English school district. Pepsi Mae West! He screams over his shoulder, spitting at the boys who aren't far behind him. Spotting Canon O'Meara in the distance, the French schoolboys begin to fall back. C'est moi! One of them shouts. Matthew limps along St. Patrick as he makes his way toward the tunnel for the second time that week. Once on Wellington, he begins to lean against the metal railing by the canal for support, trying to avoid putting weight on his ankle. You look like you went around with Joe Gans, Art calls out from the swing bridge as Matthew approaches. Who? A boxer, one of the best in the world, he says excitedly, jumping in place and jabbing at the air. Never heard of him. Art lowers his fists and frowns. Well, anyway, what happened? That louse Paul giving you a hard time again? Yeah. Well, no. Which is it? Matthew stops and leans against the banister, tired of walking on a sore leg. Both, I guess. I didn't want Paul razzing on me again, so I cut through where the French kids go to school, and, well, they didn't like that too much, especially when I knocked one of them over. Art bursts into laughter, doubled over and clutching his stomach. Eventually, the laughter dies down, and he stares out at Matthew, wiping a tear out of his eye. Matt, you goop! You gotta be batty to cut through the Frenchy school! My friend Patrick said the same thing. Your friend Pat's got a head on his shoulders. Why'd you do something so boneheaded anyway? I was trying to get home quicker. I didn't want to take the tunnel again, and crossing through Seigneur's to Basin is the fastest way to Mountain. Plus, you know, Paul wasn't about to follow me that way. Art nods and unbuttons his suit jacket. He leans against one of the metal beams, letting the rays of the sun light up his face. Matthew takes a seat on the pavement, legs straddling one of the metal bars, and the two boys look across the water at each other. Didn't really work out the way I thought it would, to be honest. You don't say, Art drawls. Why don't you take the bridge? What bridge? <laughs> this bridge, dummy! Art laughs. Matthew froze his brow and stares at the massive structure in the water. It's the easiest way to get from the point to the griff, so why are you taking the long way around? Because the bridge hasn't worked in years. Which reminds me, you never did tell me how you get up on there. Yes, I did. I told you. I jumped when the bridge was swinging. But that's impossible. The bridge hasn't been used for years. Doesn't mean that it still doesn't work. The controls are here. Art points vaguely to what looks like a rusted metal box on the man-made platform. I can swing it around for you if you want. That way you won't have to take the tunnel again today. And we can hang out here for a bit. I don't know. Doesn't really look all that safe. Ah, come on. I'm up on here, aren't I? You'll be fine. Nah, plus I should really be getting home. Oh, you don't have to leave yet. You only just got here. The look he gives Matthew is almost pleading. Matthew realizes with a twinge of sadness that Art probably doesn't have many friends. Yeah, I guess I can stick around. Did you have a hard time in the tunnel yesterday? Matthew sighs, wishing they could talk about anything else. But he finally gives in and tells Art about what happened the day before about how useless he felt, and about what his father had said to him at dinner. What a rat, Art says angrily. It's not your fault there were four of them. Don't tell him that. You don't get along with him, your dad? Matthew shrugs. It's okay. I hate my old man too. Or, I did. He died a while back. Art pauses, expecting Matthew to interject, and continues when the other boy remains silent. I always liked swimming. Wanted to be a big shot speed swimmer. I was faster than everyone I knew, and this club was looking to take on new racers, so I wanted to be one of them. Got a membership to the Montreal Swimming Club and everything. So the day of the tryouts, what does my paw do? Starts wailing on me, yelling, I don't pull my weight, saying I'm a burden on the rest of them. Bastard clouts me hard on the ear, Art tells him sadly. Thinking maybe popped or something, because my balance was shot afterward, and but I didn't care. I needed to make the swim meet. So I'm running, stumbling over myself, and I get to this bridge, and I jump. And? Matthew asks, holding his breath. Nothing. I just... I didn't make it in time. Never got on the swim team. Neither of them speaks for a while, the sound of the water lapping against the side of the Lachine Canal filling the silence between them. I'm sorry, Matthew finally offers. Don't be, Art says, looking out on the horizon. I'm glad he's gone. 
You don't miss him? <laughs> no. But I miss... I don't know. I miss having someone to play with, I guess. The two sit in comfortable silence for a long time. So long, in fact, that it's only the sound of rush hour traffic that reminds Matthew that he needs to get home. I'll see you tomorrow, he asks as he gets up. You know where to find me. Matthew tugs on the laces of his scuffed shoes, trying not to cringe as the fabric pulls against his scraped hands, and ties his runners tight. His black eyes swollen nearly shut, and his ankle hurts to even look at. He's not going to let anyone have the satisfaction of seeing him in pain, least of all Paul. He'd failed the history test the day before, just like he knew he would without the textbook, and his teacher made him stay late this afternoon to write lines as punishment, hoping to drill the right answers into his head for the next test. Unfortunately, it didn't take long for Paul and his lackey to find out that Matthew was going to be walking home alone on Friday night, and Matthew can see the boy's hulking form waiting for him outside the front gate of the school. He rummages through his bag for his beclomethasone. He finds the brown inhaler and shakes it well before taking a hit of it. He puts the medication back in his bag, which he slings across his back, and prepares himself for the long run home. He knows he's not going to make it, but that's not going to stop him from trying. He opens the heavy front door, letting it slam closed behind him, starts walking down the front path of Ken and O'Meara. Paul grins, something predatory in the way his thin lips curl as he walks toward the iron fence. Came out to play after all, eh, Maddie? He waits for an answer, but Matthew doesn't say anything as he calmly approaches the gate. You're gonna be eating through a tube after this knuckle sandwich. Paul pulls his fist back, and that's when Matthew runs. He pushes David with all his strength and bolts past the two boys with all the speed he can muster. His feet pound the pavement, waves of pain shooting through his ankle and up his leg as he charges down Center Street. He can hear David hot on his heels along with Paul's labored breathing as he hunts Matthew down. Matthew's chest is tight, lungs taking in less and less air, but it refuses to stop as he turns onto Wellington. In the distance, he can see the swing bridge and art silhouette against a darkening sky. Yeah, dead, Matty! Paul shouts between pants, his face red with exertion. Matthew glances over his shoulder, sees that David is gaining on him, and begins to panic. He knows that in a few short moments the larger boy will be on top of him, giving him the beating of a lifetime. He knows that if he's caught, this year will be a repeat of the year before. The year before that. He'll be a punching bag every day for the rest of the year, afraid to go anywhere alone, forced to wait for Patrick and his brothers every day, and hoping that Paul will finally get tired of terrorizing him and move on to another victim. The Wellington Bridge is closer now, Art pacing along the edge of it as he watches Matthew run. Swing! It! He screams to Art. He runs with all his might, his muscles screaming, trying to ignore the sound of David closing in on him. There's a loud groan, heavy steel scraping against heavy steel, and Matthew watches in astonishment as the bridge begins to pivot in the Lachine Canal seemingly of its own volition. The rusted structure slowly spins toward the road, and Art stands atop it, motioning for Matthew to run faster. How is he controlling it? Isn't the control box... Get ready to jump, Matt! You have to go now! Art screams from the end of the bridge. Matthew beelines for the metal railing of the canal. He runs, pushing himself to his limits as he approaches the banister. He launches himself over the railing of the canal, just like he's done so many times with the gate of Cannon O'Meara, and throws himself at the bridge with the last of his strength. As he pushes off the wall, his ankle buckles underneath him, and he knows right away he won't make the jump like he should. He falls grabbing desperately for the bridge, and manages to cling to a metal beam just below the edge. His torn hands ache, and panic begins to flood his senses as the bridge moves slowly closer to the concrete wall. Above him on the street, he can hear David and Paul screaming for help. He looks up and sees Art leaning comfortably against the rusting steel. Pull me up! He yells, voice cracking. Art, help me up! Art smiles and crosses his arms over his chest as he watches Matthew dangle helplessly over the water. Help me up! Matthew looks over his shoulder. The solid cement wall is only a few feet away. Arthur, help me up! It's Art, and if I do, you'll go back to your crummy life with your crummy dad and your crummy kids from school, but if I don't, I won't be alone, and you won't have to keep running. Don't worry, Matt. It only hurts for a second. Promise. What? Matthew cries, the wall inches from his skin. What are you saying? Help me, Art! I am! Matthew stares up at him, bile building in the back of his throat. So I'm running, stumbling over myself, and I get to this bridge, and I jump. I didn't make it in time. Never got on the swim team. 
Art smiles down at him and Matthew closes his eyes. He can feel the cold cement pressing against his skin from one side, and the hard steel crushes him from the other. His chest is tight, different than all the other times, and he opens his mouth to scream. With a deafening thud, the Wellington Bridge clicks into place against the wall, and everything is silent. 2015 Sarah wipes a tear away with the back of her hand, hoping her eyes don't look as puffy as they feel. Her phone vibrates in her pocket and, with some reluctance, she takes it out and answers it. Where are you? You were supposed to be home an hour ago! The voice screams on the other end of the line. I know, Mom. Sorry. What happened? Jody hid all my clothes again after Jim. I, I couldn't find them. By the time I did, the school bus had already gone, she says, throat tight. I'll be home in the next hour or so. I'm headed to the overpass now. You couldn't take the city bus? No, you didn't fill my Opus card this month. Oh, so it's my fault you're not on time then. Is that what you're telling me? No, of course not, Mom. I'm sorry, Sarah says quietly. I need you home now. Your brothers need help with their homework. I don't know where the fuck your dad is, and I need to get to work. So get home. Got it? Yeah, got it. Bye, Mom. She hangs up her phone and puts it back in her pocket, staring at the ground as she makes the long trip to the overpass, connecting Point St. Charles to Griffintown. It's a quiet afternoon. The only noise is the sound of traffic in the distance as the waves of the canal splashing against the basin walls. You're headed to the overpass, aren't you? A boy calls out. Sarah looks behind her, startled, but doesn't see anything. I'm over here! The boy calls out again. She turns, spawning two boys, watching her as they lean against the rusted steel beams of the old swing bridge. One is dressed in a peculiar black suit cut at the knees, and the other is wearing vintage-looking clothes with scuffed black sneakers. The boy in the sneakers waves as she stares back at him. Yeah, it's the quickest way home, she says. You live in the Griff? The boy asks excitedly. Yeah, on William Street. Me too, he cries. Really? Yeah, but I wouldn't take the overpass if I were you. And why's that? She asks. Bunch of guys headed that way before you came along. Looked like they weren't too keen on making friends. If I was you, I'd find another way home today. But don't worry, I know a shortcut into the griff if you want. She nods, nervous, and he smiles at her. What's your name? Sarah. Sarah... Rosenthal, she answers. Nice to meet you, Sarah Rosenthal. My name's Matthew. But you can call me Matt. That was Caitlin Marceau's Run, as read by Dennis Robinson. Dennis is one of the creators behind Botched, a D&D podcast. However, this narration comes at a special time. Over ten years ago, Dennis had the idea to do a graphic novel about the world's first werewolf. Now, that dream, once shelved, has become a reality. A little mythology a dash of folklore, and a sprinkling of history, he brings to you Lycan, Solomon's Odyssey. This is the first in an ongoing series set to span across the ages. The Kickstarter launches... Well, it launched today, in fact. If you could check out the project, it would mean the world to him. Feel free to search for Lycan, that's L-Y-C-A-N, Solomon's Odyssey on Kickstarter. Go to HiveHeadStudios.com, LichenBook.com, or hell, even ClockFox.net, because, honestly, Dennis has some really weird and devoted patrons over at Botched Podcast. I had the great pleasure to get an early sneak peek at what Dennis has cooked up, and I can't wait to check out the full issue. Both the storytelling and the artwork are phenomenal so far. So if you're a fan of horror, legends, and graphic novels, I highly encourage you to check out his Kickstarter. All of those links are in the show notes. Good luck with the launch, Dennis, and thanks for reading for us. Well, children of the night, the hour is late. 
and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Amazing fans like Kathy Robinson, aka Deadly Blonde. If you're not a supporter already, be like Kathy. Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks, from ad-free episodes and bonus content to shout-outs and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to help make it as dark and devious as possible. And we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Now you can share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch. TalesToTerrify.com merch will take you to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing, so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Brian Rollins, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we see what beast lurks beneath the bed with more Tales to Terrify. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.